from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 13th. Today, a new wave of state abortion bans campaigning for universal basic income, and how climate change is transforming an extreme sport. All those in favor say aye. Oh, no, Any ho, opposed? Ho, 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 motion passes. Ho, ho. Committee Mr. amendment Chairman, is tabled. Mr. 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 Chambers. That was no motion. That was no motion. Was a, motion. a shouting match broke out in the Alabama Senate last week over a proposed bill that would ban abortion in the state. You know, I know you all are for this bill, and I know this bill is going to pass. You're going to get your way. But at least treat us fairly and do it the right way. That bill is expected to pass this week. And it's one of a number of laws in states around the country that are explicitly aimed at challenging Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Court decision from 1973 that said that women have a right to an abortion. My name is Deanna Paul. I'm a staff writer at The Washington Post, and I'm on the general assignments desk. Let's start with Georgia. What is the legislation that has been happening there? Last week, Georgia's governor signed into law something called the heartbeat bill. The law will ban abortion after a doctor is able to detect a fetal heartbeat. So usually that's about six weeks after pregnancy, which at that point, most women don't know that they're pregnant. So it's effectively a ban because if most people don't know that they're actually pregnant at the six-week mark, then most women will miss the window to be able to have an abortion. That's true. And Georgia's law was actually the most stringent until Alabama proposed theirs last week. There are three exceptions in Georgia if a pregnancy was caused because of rape, because of incest, or because having an abortion is necessary for the mother's health. And what happens if someone violates the law? Could women be prosecuted in these cases? The law in Georgia is targeted primarily at physicians. The law lists penalties for physicians who do abortions and sentencing for physicians who do abortions. It doesn't say anything about prosecuting a woman who has an abortion or prosecuting women who have miscarriages, which is something that has kind of been circulated on social media in the last few weeks. And when does this go into effect? The Georgia law is supposed to go into effect in 2020. But between now and then, there will presumably be a number of challenges to it. It's possible that it won't actually be able to go into effect then. So that's Georgia. And then Alabama is considering a similar piece of legislation. What's going on there? Last week, Alabama's Senate had a vote to pass a total abortion ban. The way the Alabama law works is that it starts at the time of pregnancy. So it's not about six weeks or 20 weeks or 15 weeks, which we see in other states. So no one can get an abortion at any point during their pregnancy. The only way that you can have an abortion is if it's necessary for the mother's health. And and both of these pieces of legislation are in tension with Roe v. Wade, right? So Roe v. Wade is a seminal case that has to do with abortion. And what Roe v. Wade said is that women have a right to privacy and liberty in choosing what to do with their pregnancy with the consent of a doctor. Under Roe v. Wade, a woman can get an abortion in the first trimester. The second trimester is left more up to the state. And the third trimester... Barring some extreme circumstances, you can't get an abortion. The bill from Alabama and the law that was passed in Georgia, both of them are in contradiction to Roe v. Wade. Georgia, with it being a six-week ban that is far before the second trimester when a state would be able to get involved, and Alabama, 
kind of just circles around rote because it says that viability and your trimesters really don't matter at all. Everybody thinks that they're going to be challenged, both conservatives and Democrats. Everyone thinks that they're going to be challenged and brought up to the Supreme Court. Not that that means that the Supreme Court will eventually take the case. In fact, one of the congressmen in Alabama specifically said that her intention in proposing this bill was to get Roe v. Wade overturned. And we've seen other states that have been putting in place similar legislation, seemingly with the same goal of getting something to the Supreme Court. Yes, like Mississippi and Ohio, there have also been laws in Iowa, North Dakota, and Kentucky. And those laws were passed and ultimately blocked by the courts. Really, any state that's put into a law that was challenged by the courts and has gone through the process has ultimately been blocked. But they're appealing it with the hopes that it's going to get to higher and higher courts and then up for Supreme Court consideration. Exactly. And what are the chances that the Supreme Court would look at some of these laws and and maybe go back and rethink their decision in Roe v. Wade? There's something called stare decisis, which is adhering to prior court precedent. Generally, when a new Supreme Court justice or any justice joins a bench, that in and of itself should not be a reason that the court overturns a prior precedent. There has to be some other reason, a new understanding in modern society or some new evidence that wasn't there before. But do you think that will turn out to be the case here? Because I think that there is an expectation that Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court in some part because he had a stance against abortion. Is there an expectation that this is the opportunity to get some of these abortion laws into the court because it would be a friendlier court to be asking questions about abortion? There are, of course, some people who hope that's the case and some people who hope that it's not. There was a case in 1992 called Casey, which was based on a Pennsylvania law and had to do with abortion rights and whether or not a woman needed informed consent from her husband if she was married and a few other things. But when it went up to the Supreme Court, the court had recently shifted to become a conservative court at that time. And the opinion was written by Souter, Kennedy, and O'Connor. And it was a 5-4 decision, and the majority was an interesting mix of people. But they said in that case that there was no reason for them to do anything but uphold Roe. Are there new circumstances in these cases that would give the Supreme Court the ability to say, well, actually, things are different now and we have to readdress this decision because the cases and the circumstances of the cases are different? Not that I can think of and not that any of the legal experts that I spoke to could think of. During oral arguments, if it goes up to the Supreme Court, they'll absolutely come up with reasons to argue to the court because they're not just going to walk in and be like, hey, Brett Kavanaugh, because you're on the court now, can we do this? But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily winning arguments and both sides will try and make their positions as convincing as possible. What's going to happen next on this? This week, we have a vote in Alabama on their total ban. And after that, there are presumably going to be a number of challenges to various states in terms of their abortion bills. And we'll see them be challenged and move up through the state courts and ultimately see if the Supreme Court chooses to take any of these cases to their docket. Deanna Paul is a reporter for The Washington Post.
You can record, obviously. Cool. All right, let's fire away. Well, I just, I've seen you in a bunch of different rallies. I think I first saw you in Chicago a few weeks ago. Oh, really? which How was, fun is that? It was like mob scene, right? Yeah. And I messaged my editors, and I was like sort of impressed by like just the different kinds of people that were at that event. It's a very unusual crowd for a political event, right? Yeah. Who is Andrew Yang? Who is Andrew Yang? <laughs> That's a good question that I hear from a lot of voters, but it's a surprising number of people know who he is just because they see his social media. He is a Taiwanese-American entrepreneur who is running for president. I mean, how did you sort of start thinking about running for the presidency? I realize for like most any person is waking up and being like, I'm going to run for president, like seems very fanciful, um, perhaps rash. <laughs> Holly Bailey is a political reporter for The Post. And on a trip to Iowa a few weeks ago, she interviewed Andrew Yang. He's a New York lawyer, a philanthropist, and a self-made millionaire. Yang is pretty well known in the business world. Some years back, he quit his law firm job to become an entrepreneur. When his education startup sold, he made millions. And now, Yang is making an unconventional bid for the presidency. He is notable because he has basically no discernible campaign infrastructure. He has a you know less than a dozen people working for him, yet he is getting crowds that are like thousands of people. When was the first time that you heard about him and the fact that he was running for president? Honestly, the first time I heard about him was when my editors here at The Post asked me to look into him, and I had <laughs> not heard of him. And so I went to Chicago. Um, It was a freezing, frigid night in March. There was between 1,500 and 2,000 people crammed into this tiny space. And I thought, this is really surprising for somebody who I haven't heard of. And it was a really interesting crowd as well. There were young people. There were old people. There were union people. um, There were black people. There were Latino people. um, And they loved him. This is not left, guys. It is not right. So right now we're at a point where a lot of presidential candidates are trying to figure out how they're going to get attention and stand out in this huge, very crowded field of Democrats. For Andrew Yang, what is his strategy? Well, his strategy from the very beginning was to just to try to appeal to non-traditional ways of getting attention, mainly because we in the media weren't paying attention to him. He announced for president actually more than a year ago, and that got very little attention. And so he started going out and doing podcasts. He went on Freakonomics. This is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast. And the episode was called, you know, why is this guy running for president, which is really <laughs> funny. And he laughs about that. Andrew Yang is not famous, not yet at least. Maybe he will be someday. But the big one that put him on the map was he went on the Joe Rogan show. And we're live. Hello. Hey, Joe. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks Which, for having me. you know, a lot of people do not realize is the most popular Super podcast. Super popular. People love that podcast. Right. He's, Joe Rogan is kind of maybe famous to most people as the guy who used to host Fear Factor. But he's a stand-up comedian, and he is an MMA fighter and did a lot of commentating. But his podcast is kind of this destination for, you know, everybody you can imagine. His podcast has an audience of a lot of young men, I should say, and they refer to him as the Oprah for dudes. And so Andrew Yang goes on this podcast and he gets two hours and suddenly it blows up for him. And what, what is he talking about when he goes on these podcasts? 
He goes on the podcast to talk about, which is we should stop and point out, is a pretty unusual message for a Democratic contender. He is campaigning on the fear of automation and what and what it's doing to jobs in America. The, the danger here is to think of it as artificial intelligence is coming. It's actually already eating up the most common jobs in our economy, and it's driving Americans uh, into distress. In he sort of backs it up with an argument for universal basic income, which is something we have that people have talked about for quite some time. But he calls his version the freedom dividend. So universal basic income. This is what this is all about. My initial knee jerk reaction was get the out of here. And he would give a thousand dollars a month to people between ages of 18 and 64, arguing that that could help sort of revive, you know, give people a cushion to fill, you know, it's not enough money for people to stop working, for example, but he argues it would be enough to give people a cushion to sort of think about what they want to do to pay some bills and, you know, to maybe revive some of these small towns that have been struggling. Oh, man. I mean, if you put $1,000 into the hands of a struggling American, it's going to make a much bigger difference, not just to that person, but it's also going to go back into the economy. Universal basic income is an idea that we hear about somewhat frequently, but usually from super liberal people and mm-hmm. is very much not like a, a, a mainstream democratic tenant. Not at all. Does he think that that will actually get him a lot of support? Well, he is getting a lot of support if you go to his rallies. I mean, we've seen voters start to ask candidates what they think about universal basic income. Bernie Sanders was asked about it and he rejected it. He said, you know, I want to create jobs. Um, and, you know, Better Work was also asked about it, and he rejected it. But Andrew Yang enjoys this. He's like, you know, my ideas are getting out there. My ideas are being asked about of these people. And when it comes to an idea like universal basic income, how is he backing that up with how it could actually work in the real world? The first thing he talks about is how to pay for it. And he talks about a tech tax is what it was, how he describes it. And he wants to tax uh, companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook. He wants to tax their profits. And he thinks that that would generate billions of dollars, which would then fund what he calls the tech check. And he thinks that's only fair. And he points to the fact that some of these companies like Amazon, whose owner, I should point out, owns the Washington Post, he points out that, they, that these people are sort of to blame for these dying small towns um, in the Midwest. And you know, he argues that it's only fair to sort of tax those profits to put that money back into the system. And also, he is a person that's arguing that he's putting his money where it counts. Um, he is giving $1,000 a month to a family in New Hampshire. Um, and he's also looking for someone in Iowa. They haven't picked someone yet. They're taking applications. But for the last four months, he's been giving $1,000 a month to a family in New Hampshire. The dad lost his job, but is now working again. And, you know, the mother had some employment issues as well. But it's all just, he argues, to point out the benefits of universal basic income. And so um, I talked to that family. And, you know, the one thing that they really liked about him is that they said not in the three hours that they met with him and not in any time since when they've had dealings with him has he ever said, you know, vote for me. How are people finding out about Andrew Yang and how is he doing on fundraising? Well, it's through podcasts, but it's mainly through social media. You know, he's always doing a lot of Instagram and videos, and people love that. And so that has really boosted him. And before anybody kind of laughs at that, the fact is, is that it's helped him raise a lot of money for being a complete unknown. Through the last report, we had, he raised $1.7 million, which 
is a lot of money for someone who no one knows who that is. Will that be enough money to qualify him for the debate stage? Well, he has raised money from about 80,000 donors, and the threshold was 65,000. So he is on the debate stage that way, but he's also qualified by making 1% in the polls, as he often likes to point out. So he's, he's, he's qualified on both those fronts. It's a line in his rallies. He comes out and he says... The bad news is I'm at 3% of the polls. The good news is I'm at 3% of the polls. And he kind of downplays those numbers by pointing out that he's statistically tied with people like Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand, people who are much better known than he is. Um, And so it's, you know, we have it. If you look at the polls, it's not really clear exactly who is supporting him. But you go to these rallies and you kind of wonder, I mean, these huge rallies. And we know, we all know here at the Yang Gang that our campaign is already getting former Trump supporters, independents, Republicans, libertarians, Democrats, and progressives. We're going to build a coalition that's going to sweep the floor, mop the floor with Donald Trump. He's also gotten some surprising support from white nationalist circles. Which is really strange. It's really weird. Asian. <laughs> the weird thing that's that's happened is that there have been some white nationalists who've tweeted uh, you know, positively about him, including Richard Spencer, who called him the most grounded presidential candidate of his lifetime. We've also seen, you know, memes um, where it's blended um, Pepe the Frog, which is a, you know, very popular uh, symbol of the alt-right. They've shown Pepe the Frog wearing an Andrew Yang for president cap. Um, And what has happened is that they have seized on his message, um, his anti-automation message, as as a way of, they view him as someone that's trying to save white America. And Yang is really, really mystified by all of this. You know, like, was I surprised? Like, of course, because I don't, you know, like, I don't uh, look like a white nationalist. And so I sort of am surprised that anyone who's in that camp would be like, ooh, that, that candidate. Like, that, that's not something I ever would have anticipated. His campaign, you know, is, has struggled to sort of contain all of that, you know, because it's all over social media and they've struggled to stop it. So it was a surprise in, at the time and um, that, you know, that required a bit of an adjustment mm-hmm. in my thinking. I feel like that kind of speaks to the idea that this is a candidacy that nobody really understands. And it seems like he doesn't completely understand and that he is kind of out of left field and it's unclear exactly who his base would be or could be. But that's also a lot like Donald Trump leading into 2016. And this was a candidate that people didn't really think was a serious contender until a lot of people just happened to like his message from a lot of different parts of America. Well, I think one of the untold stories of the 2020 campaign so far is how many people who are running for president have been emboldened by the fact that Donald Trump run for ran for president and won. They look at his candidacy and say, why can't I do that? And that's not just, you know, elected people, you know, people better known than Andrew Yang. But Andrew Yang looks at that and says, if 2016 offers any lessons is that a political outsider like me can win. And so he very much, you know, sort of clings to that. But, you know, it's going to be very interesting. I think that, you know, there's an open question about what voters want. Do they want somebody that's sort of offering a fresh message? And that is sort of looking to the future in some ways. Um, and there's no question when when Andrew Yang speaks, he's he's very impressive. And he's going to get this wide, you know, this huge audience when he's on the debate stage next month. And then what's going to happen for millions of Americans, their reaction is going to be like, who is that person? Because they do not know who Andrew Yang is. Who is that person standing next to Joe Biden? 
know, and, and then probably hundreds of thousands, millions of them are going to Google like Andrew Yang or Asian presidential candidate or whatever the Google search term is, and then everyone's going to learn about us, read about us. Obviously, all the candidates are looking to have a breakout moment, um, but he, you know, has a, as much a chance as anybody at that, I think. Holly Bailey is a political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Big wave surfing is having a golden moment. And to be clear, this is an extreme form of the sport, riding waves that are five, six stories high. Big waves are born out of big storms. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Post. Scientists are increasingly seeing bigger and more intense storms in the future, and surfers are anticipating that translating to bigger and more intense waves coming their way. Rick has been reporting on how the warming of the oceans is transforming wave conditions. He says that surf breaks are changing in some parts of the world, including in Hawaii. So this looks pretty good, you think? Yeah, this is great. We're going to be surfing right where that guy's catching the wave. So we traveled to Maui and met with Kai Lenny, who's a 26-year-old surfer. And not just a surfer, but he's a kite surfer and a windsurfer, and he does all these different uh, varieties of, of water sport. So you probably surf here. Go do that wind sport, maybe come up to windsurfing up here, and then we'll maybe finish the day off by going surfing this other wave called Churches. If you guys want, come for the ride. <laughs> so we've been exploring all the different ways climate change is impacting the sports world. If you talk to oceanographers and meteorologists and surf forecasters, there's a lot of different thoughts about what's happening in the ocean and, and the impact it's going to have on surfing. But most of them think that as far as the big waves are concerned, we could be entering kind of a golden age of sorts. You know, these waves, a lot of them make for really cool photos and really cool video, but this is really life or death stuff. You know, these are not for the recreational surfer or the weekend surfer. These are things that guys go out there and they know that if they get the wrong wave and they don't ride it the right way, that they might not come back to shore. It all comes down to just like that little bit of fear factor, you know? So surfers like Kai Lenny realize that the potential for giant waves, that's kind of the silver lining, if you will. Um, and they don't necessarily use that phrase because they're also very aware of all the dangers posed by climate change to the ocean. It's kind of an interesting contradiction there where on one hand, he's really hurt. He feels like the ocean's sick. On the other hand, he thinks he's going to be riding the biggest waves of his life in the near future. I would say that, like, I mean, everything I do is dictated on weather. You know, I'm looking at... Surfers also have this unique perspective and they're a little bit conflicted because reefs might be dying and the beaches might be eroding. There's something else going on in the ocean and these big storms are just kicking up bigger and bigger waves and if you're a surfer that's what you want bigger storms mean bigger waves and there's going to be parts of the world where people are getting absolutely destroyed homes are lost people dying and then on the other side like out here in hawaii that same storm is sending us perfect big waves so on one hand this this kind of brand of surfer is they're thrill seekers they're adrenaline junkies they want the biggest wave because there's something inside of them that, that kind of craves it on the other hand, it's also their business. It's their livelihood. It's it's really kind of crazy to think that, like, as a surfer, the bigger the storms get, I mean, really, the better the surf's going to continue to be. For Kai Lenny, obviously, you know, these guys, 
they want the big ride and they want that sensation of being able to, to kind of conquer the big wave. But they also need it. I mean, that, that's what their sport is about. And the bigger the waves are, you know, the brighter their future is in some sense. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you're a loyal Post Reports listener, we'd love if you'd take the time to leave us a review on your podcast app. Not only do we read the reviews, but they also help other people find our show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.